and welcome to another episode of Sensational She Geek Live from Yancey Street. This episode will first be available on Friday, August 20th, 2021. However, I am recording it a day early on the 19th, which is Thursday. So I do apologize if there's anything big in the news that happens between Thursday night and Friday morning. I will not be able to add that into the usual Friday podcast because I do not see the future. That being said, we have a plethora of amazing stuff to talk about this week. I am very excited for it. Um, There's some big things in the news, even a day early from my normal recording. This is going to be a long podcast episode, so I hope that you have plenty of things here to enjoy. Uh, this episode, we're going to have a little bit of brief news at the front half, of the, the front end of the episode before we get into the comic pick list. Uh, then we'll go to the pick list and then we'll talk about What If Episode 2, Titans Season 3, Episode 4, Star Wars Visions trailer, and the Eternals trailer that came out this morning. It's the second trailer. And then we will get to have a fairly long discussion on Substack. I definitely recommend you stick around for that because this is a big deal. If you have not heard about what Substack is and what they're doing and how that's going to infect the entire comics industry at large, definitely you'll want to hear about that because it is a big deal. It's the future. Um, and there is a lot to keep in mind regarding everything about the whole Substack thing that is going on. So we'll talk about that in depth at the end of the episode. And as always, this is going to be completely full of spoilers. So if you haven't seen these things or haven't read these things and you don't want them spoiled, I'm sorry, but do not listen to this episode until you catch up with all of that because I will spoil it all for you. You can find me on Instagram. My username is Anna with the comics because my name is Anna and I have the comics. You can find me on Twitter. Well, I should add Instagram. I don't like spam with posts. I mostly just post to my stories and it pretty much just maintains being comics, my cat, and food is like the, the majority of stuff that I post to my stories. And then like once a month, I'll post a post. So it's not like you're signing on for me to spam your life here. Um, on Twitter, where it's is where I, if you have any updates for the podcast, they will be there. Otherwise, it's just, I just mess around with normal Twitter stuff. Uh, my username there is Savage She Geek because sensational was too many letters. My website is www.sensationalshegeek.weebly.com because I don't pay for it. So you have to put the Weebly in there. <laughs> Uh, I do have a lot of old writing from the website, things that I would uh, write about regarding comics and comics media before I started the podcast and started more or less just talking about all of that. I also have reading orders for some of my favorite characters in comics. Most of them, well, they're all female characters, let's be honest, they rock. I also have a selection of what I call pod notes. They're my podcast notes that I take throughout the week to make sure that I follow along some sort of idea and plan for discussing things on the podcast and don't get too off track. I have been trying to put those on the website as often as I can recall. as often as I can remember, uh, so that if you are someone who prefers to read the podcast instead of listen to it, you can do that. And also for anyone who is hearing impaired, if they would like to keep up with things going on in the in the comics culture, that would be a way to do so without having to listen to the podcast. Uh, I also have links to absolutely everywhere that you can listen to my podcast on the website, including YouTube, which is where I post um all the podcast episodes in a single playlist so they're easy to find and I also have figure review videos which are very fun to put up. Next one that I'm going to be doing is 
Beerus, my SH Figure Arts Beerus, did arrive today. He arrived at my husband's work. He'll be bringing him home with him tonight. Uh, so I will be filming that video either tonight or over the weekend. I won't be able to do it tomorrow. I'm just going to be too busy. Uh, so that will be at the very latest. That will be up Sunday. Um at the earliest, maybe tonight. So keep an eye out for that if you are a fan of Beerus. It is going to be comparing the, we'll say the dupe version, which is like the $20 figure arts version that you can just buy at like a Walmart or something, even though he's really impossible to find. Uh, we'll be comparing that version, which I do already have, with this expensive version, who was more like 50, 60 bucks, who was imported directly from Japan. Um, so if you do want to see the, that comparison and you're a fan of the character, want to know which level of purchase you want to go for, that will be a cool video for you to check out to do so. I also have a new podcast Patreon. It's under Patreon on just called Sensational She Geek. Should be fairly easy to find. I am planning on doing some rewards for that. Things like stickers that I can just send out. You don't have to do anything for it. I'll just arrive in your mailbox as like a fun little thanks for being a supporter of the podcast. And that way you can go and you can put in whatever monthly amount or single amount you really that you want to do for that to support the podcast. Uh, I also have a Redbubble store, which I started a, a couple weeks ago. Um, it has some uh, comics themed designs and some like alternative culture designs, things that you can make into stickers, t-shirts, prints, posters, coffee mugs. It's Redbubble. You can really do whatever you want with it. Um, and those are two of the ways that you can donate to the podcast and get a little bit of something in return to hopefully make it worth your time, in addition to just having the podcast to listen to. Um, otherwise, the best way to support the podcast, as usual, is just to share it with people who you think will also enjoy it, um, and so we can get more listeners and more involvement, and that will be excellent. As for those brief bits of news that I wanted to discuss, we do have one very exciting piece of news that I will list at the end of this short little list. These are all very brief things that I just kind of came across through the week that may, I figured might be mentioning to you people who may also be interested in them. Uh, first up, we have Kenobi, the Disney Plus show, finished filming on this week on Monday. I believe it's going to be coming out either at the end of this year or early next year. There is going to be a Legion of Super Pets animated movie that will be hitting theaters in May 2022 that will be featuring Beppo the Super Monkey, Comet the Super Horse, Crypto the, the Super Dog, and Streaky the Super Cat. And this is something that I came across due to doing some research on Streaky the Super Cat because of his appearance in comics this week. There will also be starting in fall, a Sheena Queen of the Jungle series coming from Dynamite Comics. It's going to be written by Stephen Mooney and drawn by Jethro Morales. So if you're a fan of that character, keep an eye out for that coming later this fall. There's also going to be an Adventure Time HBO Max series focusing on Fiona and Cake, who are the gender-swapped Finn and Jake characters from Adventure Time. I am a big Adventure Time fan. I'm sorry, please don't just shut the podcast off because I said that. I, I, I'm not like, I'm not weird. I'm weird. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I think that that would be really fun. I'm a, I really like the uh, Distant Lands thing they kind of did for Adventure Time on HBO Max or whatever it was. Um, the, the two like hour long specials or three hour long specials that they've done, those have been really fun. So, um, being on HBO Max doesn't necessarily mean that it's, uh, meant for adults, but I, I get the feeling that they understand this is a show that all ages do watch and they do kind of make it enjoyable 
for all ages for that reason. We have rumors for the Hawkeye Disney Plus show that Kingpin Wilson Fisk is going to appear on the show when it premieres this fall. Presumably, I would imagine they're going to be casting a new Wilson Fisk, not the Wilson Fisk who was Vincent D'Onofrio from Daredevil. Although if it was, I mean, if they're going to have a Fisk, I would prefer the Vincent Fisk because he nailed it. And how much would you kill to see him across from our Peter Parker of the MCU? Tom Holland, oh, they would be fantastic across from one another. And also, while we're talking about Hawkeye, we know that Echo is going to be in the Hawkeye series on Disney+. Plus. I don't know if I ever mentioned it, but she will also be getting her own uh, Echo series on Disney+. Plus. We don't know if it's going to be titled just Echo or what, but she will be getting her own show on Disney+, Plus as well, which is something that's very exciting to look forward to for fans of her and for people who are constantly looking forward to to better representation of minorities and people with disabilities in the MCU, which this is all of the above. Gotta love it. Finally, our last bit of very brief news here to kick us off of the episode. Very exciting stuff, okay? We have Dominique Thorne's Ironheart. She is going to be making her debut in the MCU in Black Panther Wakanda Forever. This news just came out a matter of maybe an hour ago. The article started picking it up. It was kind of sort of hinted at before and now it is official. This is really, really exciting for fans of Ironheart, for fans of the comics, for fans of Black Panther, for fans of Shuri, for fans of women and women of color and women in STEM. It's exciting. STEM, if you're unfamiliar, science, technology, engineering, and math. Uh, very exciting stuff here. Of course, Ironheart from the comics, Riri Williams. She is uh, inspired by Tony Stark being Iron Man, and due to her incredible intelligence, she is able to basically make her own Iron Man suit, um, and she becomes Ironheart. And she does have two, she's had two different suits now in the comics, one that is a lot more Iron Man colored, and one that is a bit more pink and black that I honestly think looks sick as hell. Uh, one other thing to note before I move on to the comic book pick list about this news the end of the Black Panther movie, we have to remember, T'Challa sets up an outreach program and a Wakandan embassy in Oakland, California. Now, if I recall, Riri is not from Oakland in the comics. Um, I don't believe that to be the case. But Riri's parents in the comics are killed in a drive-by. Now, Oakland is Oakland. Um, and the Bay Area is the Bay Area. Um, and it would be pretty easy to see how they could tie this Oakland embassy and outreach program into Riri ending up in this Wakanda Forever movie. So... We'll kind of keep you posted on that if we get any more news for that. Of course, Wakanda Forever is not going to come out. I I don't think it's going to come out till 2023. Um, I think that's I think that might be right or late 2022. They haven't started filming, as far as I know. Nothing has happened besides scripts on this um, because they had to rewrite it after Chadwick Boseman passed, of course. Uh, but in any case. Very, very excited for this. Um, I am thrilled that we are getting Riri in the MCU, and it looks like they're going to give her an excellent intro, assuming this will be involved with T'Challa's legacy, potentially Shuri's ongoing legacy, um, and just a bunch of badass ladies in the MCU. Love to see it. As usual, if you would like to skip directly over the comic book pick list and go into all of the discussions afterwards, this time you're going to want to jump to 55 minutes and 45 seconds, and I will be wrapping that stuff up and moving on. 
let's go ahead and get things started for real here with the weekly comic book pick list. The pick list is, of course, things that I found to be worthy of discussion on the podcast episode. This week was a very, very big week for comic books. Um, and so there is quite a bit here that we're going to discuss. I'm going to go through a list here very quickly, uh, just so you can see if you want to stick around and listen to me discuss some of these things. And since it is kind of a longer list, I did try and fudge it a little bit to organize it in preference order. Um, so the things that I liked more at the beginning, the things that I liked less at the end, there is nothing this week that I picked up that I didn't like in some way or that I, that I read that I couldn't find something positive to say about. So there is no, you know, big bitch session in this about Avengers or something like that this time. So uh, just stuff that we love going from most loved to less loved. We're going to start off with Trial of Magneto number one, Superman and the Authority number two, Killer Queens number one, Batman Catwoman number six, Supergirl Woman of Tomorrow number three, Homesick Pilots number eight, Marauders number 23, Spider Woman number 14, Eat the Rich number one, King the Conqueror number one, Superman Red and Blue number six, God of Tremors, which is a one shot, Catwoman, whichever issue it was came out, and the same with Nightwing. I skimmed those. We'll talk about it when we get there. <laughs> There's reasons that I want to discuss them um, that make them very important. So we'll, we'll talk about that when we get that far down. But let's go ahead and start with Trial of Magneto number one. This is written by Leah Williams with art by Lucas Wernick. And good God, this is a team that I would follow to hell and back again. Um, I absolutely adore the way that Leah Williams handles her characters. And Lucas Wernick is just, he's up there with Joel Jones as far as being able to draw attractive people attractively. <laughs> he is a fantastic artist and I will someday have prints of his and it will be glorious. Um, so of course we all know that this is kicking off because of the death of Scarlet Witch, which happened in Leah Williams's X Factor number 10. If you're not familiar with her X Factor series, I definitely recommend it. It was only 10 issues. These five issues of Trial of Magneto are kind of going to be the last half of the series that she was probably supposed to have already before Paul Lauris was pulled off the team and onto the X-Men team, which is good for her. I'm very happy to see her there too. Um, so they're giving, I think, the way that I kind of see this is them giving Leah Williams um, a reward for having backed out gracefully of finishing her X-Factor series the way she would have wanted. Um, so we start off this with, of course, um, they're trying to figure out what happened with Wanda. Just generally, she's she's dead now. What happened? So between Wolverine, which was, okay, we gotta say the Wolverine family here because it was Logan, Laura, and Dakin. So we got the three living Wolverines because I'm sorry if, if I'm spoiling things for you, um, but Scout's dead. She's not going to be dead forever, don't worry, because they can resurrect people. Although this is probably have to tie into Inferno because she's a clone and she had the whole thing about, I'm worried if I die, they're not going to be clones. Like I said, they wouldn't be brought on prior back. That was I, not not necessary information. Um, so between the Wolverines, the three of them that we've got around right now, uh, then we have iBoy, Prodigy, and the various telepaths. It really isn't very hard for the X-Men and the X-Factor team to see exactly what happened everything except for who the killer is. Basically what went down was Wanda was here at the party. She was approached by a familiar, most likely very trusted face who she didn't think was going to do her any harm. This figure, whoever they were, they grabbed her, dragged her into the bushes from behind her, dragged her backwards while she was kicking and trying to escape. Uh, they restrained her and choked her to death while she 
tried to fight for her life. It is brutal and tragic and there are no uh, pulls, there are no punches pulled with the description of how she met her end. Uh, when it turns out that she was likely bound by metal, immediately everybody's minds go to Magneto. Meanwhile, Magneto is in the Krakoan, like, embassy chamber thing, demanding that his one-time daughter get resurrected. Although Wanda is not actually a mutant, remember that whole thing? Oh gosh. It's just a mess. She's not a mutant anymore. Uh, where it stands right now, at least, apparently. Um, she the, and Pietro had, for many years, unknowingly tricked Cerebro into thinking that they were mutants. It's all very convoluted. It's how comics work. And therefore, there are backups of both her and Pietro available to use for the resurrection protocols, however old they might be. Um, but they would be able to restore some past version of herself. They take a vote on this, and the reason that they take a vote instead of just unquestioningly resurrect this dead woman is because there's a lot of bad history between the mutant community and Scarlet Witch. We all know she was the one that after House of M, uh, well, gosh, it goes further back from that. It was Avengers Disassembled was because of Scarlet Witch. House of M came directly after that, which was her completely rewriting history and the world to what she thought her father would want, and she was wrong. Um, at the end of House of M, she said no more mutants, and then we had Decimation. Decimation was when there were very, very few mutants left on Earth. Wanda, by saying no more mutants, depowered something like 98% of the world's mutant population. Um, that's a big problem. So some of them got their powers back, and some of them um, uh, didn't, <laughs> uh, but it's a very, very tough history. And then, of course, discovering that she isn't even a mutant, as they have in the past few years, that adds a lot more tension to that relationship. She's not even Magneto's daughter. They don't have that excuse to give her anymore. Um, and as we did see, within the past two years or so, whenever Empire happened, um, the only Empire event series that I would recommend you reading was the X-Men Empire. It was fantastic. Um, showcasing the different Dawn of X and House and Powers and Reign of X creators, writers, and artists really showcasing Magic's just stupendous characterization um, and showing us a very soft, unhappy side to Wanda um, regarding her own life choices and her history. So she tries to, to fix the problem of having depowered so many mutants. It doesn't go well. Um, and so pretty much the, the mutant community as a whole sees her as a major threat. That's what I'm saying here. So the council takes a vote to if they're going to restore her or not. And it's very surprising what ends up happening. Wanda has been a friend and potentially family member to these people off and on for decades. And yet they vote no. The council voted three for yes, six for no. It was Kate, Nightcrawler, and of course Magneto against Storm, Sinister, Mystique, Exodus, Emma, and Shaw. It's very interesting that Storm voted no. Um, it's a little bit out of character. And I'm very curious if there is going to be a little bit of delving into the why she did that. Um, or if they're just kind of leave it as it is that she just generally letting us assume that she just wanted to protect mutant kind in general. So, of course, things kind of come to a head and Magneto 
after realizing that they're not going to let him resurrect Wanda, Magneto decides for some reason to attack Charles through the Cerebro helmet. He actually tries to crush Charles's head. It's very brutal and they have to like pull him off of him and get the helmet off real quick. And so of course he obviously gets kicked out of the room and he goes walking down the like across Krakoa, I guess, to chance of death to the pretender, which is heartbreaking for him, but he really shouldn't be surprised about it at all because he called her that very publicly as well. They're just following in his footsteps of how he treated her to the, all of the rest of the mutants. At the Boneyard, meanwhile, we had this little kind of, like, um... Uh, sidebar where Kyle, who is, of course, Northstar's husband, he finds Tommy, who is, of course, Wanda's reality displaced son, I'm pretty sure is what he is these days, uh, staring at Wanda's body, or rather where it would have been if it wasn't apparently, I guess, entrapped in vines. Um, and the vines also take the two of them as well. And Tommy's like, he's so distraught, he doesn't even recognize what's going on. And Kyle's like, um, this is a problem. And that's all we get of that in this whole issue is just that little, that little sidebar. So, um, Later on, the Avengers are given the bad news. It's a very well done scene. Vision takes it very hard, of course. Um, and back in the battle with Magneto, Polaris has had to take over. He says, <laughs> now remember, Polaris is Magneto's actual daughter. Like, for real daughter. Uh, he says to her here in this fight, really some, some awful things about her that would bring any daughter to a rage at her own father for saying to her um and she she gets some pretty good back she says you leave a trail of dead wives and dead daughters in your wake which is also very true um and then we get pietro showing up which is the first time we've seen him for i don't know how long but hi buddy nice to see you um he's beating up magneto at high speed they have to pull him off him north star has to fly him out to to midair to keep him from getting back to Magneto and beating the shit out of him and killing him uh, because basically Pietro subscribes to the idea that Magneto probably killed Wanda because once again he very publicly um, spurned her name and called her the pretender and all of the stuff that the, the mutants kind of latched onto he kind of started that um, so it makes sense why everybody kind of thinks that he's guilty here so um, they eventually get Magneto down it happens after a really brutal fight with the Wolverines again. All three of them, um, really brutal fight. They do eventually get Magneto down. So they take him to the med bay or the whatever it is where they heal people. I guess they just call it the healing gardens, isn't it? Um, and with, uh, I believe it is Jean who looks into Magneto's mind and you see just absolutely distraught. He is in so much pain with this loss of his kind of surrogate daughter. Um, we see Pietro having a drink with Toad at the bar, which is kind of nice because, you know, old comrades, whatever. And then we see Wanda somewhere in white being stabbed, I guess, by this figure in a cloak, another white cloak. Um, and she bleeds the red into her outfit, coloring her clothes red the way they always are. And she narrates her trauma through this, and it's actually very interesting because she's been narrating this whole issue. Um, and now we see finally that it is her. Uh, so she narrates th the trauma of her life, the various regrets that she's had through her life, and as she dies in this 
what appears to be kind of a dream realm, uh, she says to the figure who's stabbing her, see you next time. And she kind of smiles as she dies in this wherever she is. And so she narrates that she's mourning her death because she died, but she knows that she's not dead. And then there's a final little page that just says, where am I in a very spooky way? Um, I don't know what the hell's going on, but I am super excited to find out. Instinctively, I am guessing this has something to do with Wanda being a Nexus being. Um, the only other thing that I would think of is that the way that she was killed with, I, th I thought it was strangling. Um, I'm pretty sure they said it was strangling, but maybe whoever it was that killed her somehow did something like a spell. I don't know. Did something so that she is not really dead or just eternally tortured or something. I don't really know, but I am very excited to find out. And there's something that I'm, that some people actually pointed out, um, across the various, you know, chat threads of the internet is that, and I've mentioned this before, actually, Leia Williams who wrote this, of course, uh, she is not a writer who is known to torture emotionally or otherwise any of her characters. Um, and she is putting here both Magneto and Wanda majorly through the ringer. And this is one thing to me, and that is in big capital letters, she has a point to make. And we're going to see that play out. I can guarantee it. She has made a point of speaking up about how she does not torture her characters emotionally or otherwise, without good cause. Uh, unless that is the only way that these things can happen, blah, blah, blah. You know, you get it. Um, but to back that up, this is basically her wrap-up of X-Factor, her, like, dream team, her from some of her favorite characters. So I really don't think that she is going to muck it up that much. Um, I, I think this is going to be pretty much us seeing Leia Williams put her all into... Um, Trial of Magneto. And I would definitely assume by the end of the second issue, we're going to know that Magneto was not the one to kill Wanda and move on to who we're putting on trial next, or rather who Magneto might be putting on trial, whatever the case may be. Superman and the Authority, number two. Uh, we had this is by Grant Morrison and Mikael Janin. I don't know if I said that right. I already forgot. My husband heard us say his name on a podcast and he told me how to say it and I already forgot. I'm consistently bad at pronouncing names. Uh, this week, Mikael Jenin is joined by Fico Osio, Evan Cagle, and Travel Foreman on art. Yes, Travel, not Travis. Um, really, really cool issue. This is going to be a four-issue series, and it is also the very last work at DC Comics that Grant Morrison is going to be writing. They've put that out there. They've been very public about it. This is my last work at DC. Um, with these extra artists, they did a really, really good job of giving a kind of a once-over explanation of the various characters who we got introduced here and their powers without over-explaining things, without having to put a lot of, like, extra stuff in there, nothing like that. It was very smooth and very clear. I actually found it really, really hilarious that Morrison kept beating the haters to the punchline by calling their own team members as, like, waving the diversity flags in various ways. It's fantastic. Morrison is also using their incredible, incredible killer writer reputation at DC to trick the toxic fans who tend to follow them from thing to thing because they, up until somewhat recently, have been known as kind of a man's man of a writer, um, which is not very accurate to their, their, um, 
history of writing, but to each their own, I guess. Um, but, but Morrison has, seems to have tricked a sect of toxic fans into loving this very gay, very PC comic. It is fantastic. It is, it is, and when I say gay, I, I don't mean it as a slur. I'm not saying it as a slur. When I say gay, I mean it is queer and I mean that as like, that's awesome. I want to see a lot more gay people in comics. I want to see gay ass comics. I want that. Like, hell yeah. The story for Apollo and Midnight. So he had Steel, was the character we met, the female Steel, daughter of Steel, I guess, uh, in, the, in a little short story called Nat versus Net, which was cute. And then you have Apollo and Midnighter. And this is what I mean by I want to see gay stuff in comics. Apollo and Midnighter are husbands, and the story that they are in is called Apollo and Midnighter are hard. And they call, uh, at several points in this, they call Superman a sexy dad Superman, which was as opposed to the skinny next-gen Superman. Grant, how many gay jokes can you fit on a page? I love this. And I had made some comment about this online, about how I'm loving how gay this comic is. And uh, somebody actually responded saying, is it more or less gay than Wonder Woman and Earth One? And I actually... I'm not sure, man. It's it's definitely tied, at least. It may be more gay than Wonder Woman Earth One, which I may remind you is also a Grant Morrison project and is my favorite iteration of Wonder Woman ever written. It's not canon, though, so... Well, at least not canon to the main DCU, but it's still the best. My point is, Grant Morrison is basically just saying, fuck it, I'm gonna write what I wanna write, and it's working out better than I think anybody could have guessed it would. So, uh, keep it coming. <laughs> this is amazing. Oh, and they do do more stuff. I just whacked my microphone again. They do do more stuff in the issue. They go and they find Enchantress, and that's where we're going to pick up in the next issue, because she seems to be trapped in layers upon layers of, like, spells and nightmares upon nightmares. Some kind of weird, like, twisty Inception thing going on in her head. Um, so they're going to have to free her from that. Um, and then there's two more characters I know that we're going to be getting in the next issue who are going to join the authority alongside Superman. Can't tell you who they are. Not a clue. They do not look familiar to me. <laughs> we'll figure that out in the next issue, which I am super excited for. If you are a person who enjoys Grant Morrison's writing or Mikhail Janin's art, Janin? Jan I'm trying to figure it out as I, as I go. Um, or just you know, fun queer shit in comics. Like, this This is this is amazing. I love this. It's super gay, and it's super fun, and it's still somehow a very serious comic. It's very round. You know how they call characters very round when they have lots of depth? This is a very round comic. I. It's only gonna be four issues, too. The last of Morrison's writing at DC. You do not want to miss this. Killer Queens is also just gonna be four issues, and oh my god, it fucking delights me. <laughs> this is another really gay as fuck comic. I'm sorry, I'm getting too excited. Um, you don't want to miss it. You do not want to miss this. Basically, um, it's following these two assassins who are, of course, gay uh, in space. Also, they're space assassins. Um, and they have recently left the business because they didn't want to kill some kids. And they double-crossed their adorable evil monkey boss, who has otter hitmen for hire who everybody thinks are really cute and they don't want to kill them but then they have to kill them any it's okay this is funny this shit is hilarious so like before issues you are not signing up for a lot here but you are signing up for a lot in terms of what you are getting out of it 
It's awesome. Um, there was a lot of really awesome lines in this. It starts off with um, one th- the, the male character having sex in the bathroom with, I guess, an alien. He's pink, so I'm assuming he's an alien. Um, and the other character is on a really bad date at this bar, and the monkey guy shows up and they fight him off with his otter hitman for hire. Oh my gosh, this is really funny. Um, and then to explain things, they put, um, oh, is this the part where you have totally unnecessary dialogue stating things we both already know? Really clever. And then um, just just funny stuff, okay? Like, I can't believe you parked the ship out in the open. And then he responds, I can't believe he didn't look for it in the parking garage. Like, I don't know, man. It's just funny. <laughs> they end up on some planet where they have another job to do uh, by Alex's ex-girlfriend, Callisto. So it's kind of awkward. She lives on an all-female planet, mostly, um, and they are hired for a rescue mission. It's supposed to be a very secret rescue rescue mission. But it turns out that when they arrive on the planet, they, they, they crash land into the middle of a packed stadium. So secret, this mission is not. <laughs> but this comic is completely hilarious um i am so excited to read the second issue of it there is a fantastic variant by jen bartell it's a one of ten variant um this is awesome i just i love it it's delightful tom king and clay man oh god that was bad clay man's batman catwoman number six i didn't write it down uh, the explanation for the Batcat romance as Tom King has been writing it, I'm not going to go through that again because this is already a long episode, but you can find it on episode 20A of this podcast. I've gone through it a few times, but that is the most recent time. Uh, the three plot lines, we got future, past, and present. In the future, Selena Kyle admits to her daughter, Helena, that she killed the Joker after she ends up actually going on a mission with Helena in her old age and it's hilarious although I can't tell if she had leggings on or if it was like her bare ass legs just being really fit for an old woman either way it looked awesome in the past uh Bruce finds or rather tracks down Selena and admits to her that he can't go on without her meanwhile in modern times Selena takes Phantasm's side, and Phantasm, remember, is Andrea Beaumont, when she calls Bruce out for pretty much allowing criminals to keep being bad instead of just killing them and stopping the the cycle. And I gotta say, she's very much not wrong, and you can assume Catwoman agrees because she knocks Bruce out to go help her kill the Joker. (laughs) Which Bruce was definitely not agreed with. Obviously, that's not what happens here, um, because the Joker ends up getting killed in the future when Selena is an elderly woman and so is he. So I, I think here that we can assume whatever it is that Selena holds against the Joker until the day that she kills him regarding Andrea will happen as they confront him together here, whatever that's going to end up being. I still think he's somehow going to mess with Andrea's head really, really bad. Um, and it might have to do with the apparent grandchildren that he apparently has in photos as an old man. Who would shack up with him and have these kids besides someone whose mind has been twisted? And what else would make Selena so mad that she carries this grudge past her husband's death and past the promise that she made him on his deathbed not to harm Joker so that she can kill the Joker for, specifically for Andrea? It's got to be something really bad and really twisted. So that's why my theory is as twisted as it is. So um, issue seven 
I'm excited to see hopefully the start of that kind of path being taken um, so we can start getting some answers. And I know there's a lot of people who really do not like Tom King's writing. The best that I can figure for you guys who don't like Tom King's writing is you just don't like having to think about stuff. Every time somebody has told me why they don't like Tom King's writing, it's because I don't get it. Or it's a twisted journey of mystery. Or nothing straightforward or you have to wait for the reveal so long. I'm sorry, man. It's because you're, you're lazy and you don't want to have to wait for the stuff to be worked out and to make theories yourself and to kind of like work your way through it as the story goes. Like that's what you're kind of supposed to do with this stuff or whatever. I guess some people just want it handed to them in a silver platter. That's fine. But you're really missing out on some fantastic stuff. Tom King also has this week's Super, Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow, number three. This is only of eight issues. Batcat is going to be of six plus a special, which has been pushed back to December, <laughs> which is several months after it was supposed to come out. But that's fine. Uh, we'll still get it eventually. But this Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow, number three, I don't have a whole lot to say about it because it is a very intense issue. Um, but it is probably some of the most stunning pages of the first three issues so far, and it is an incredibly heartbreaking mystery. Um, it speaks of needless racism against fellow mankind, Kara's inner rage combined with duty that I feel so many creators have chosen to ignore over the years. Kara is a bad bitch and a total boss, and we are seeing that here from the, um, from the narration of a very simple, observant young woman. So this is a really cool journey that we're going on with Kara. Um, I, I don't think I could be happier with it. And it's definitely written in a different way than King kind of usually writes his stuff. It is still very much a puzzle that's going to lead up to a certain answer, but this time he has already given us part of the answer. We know going into this, the narrator tells us that, you know, down the line, Kara ends up killing the guy thereafter, uh, which is what they're on the road to do now. So... Uh, we know that does end up happening, we just don't know what happens between point A and point B, and that's what the purpose of the story is, I presume. Um, there may be some more stuff after she kills the guy, I'm sure that'll be relevant, but for the bulk of it, it's going to be her getting up to that point. Homesick Pilots number eight continues to be completely phenomenal. This issue had a really cool effect they did with the art. Um, it is very kind of pristine inking that the artist does for these issues and I'm obsessed with it um but as as we'll get there the 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 characters go to a rock concert in this issue and the art style changes to match the vibe of the concert that was awesome I so recommend this um but what anyway so we have Ami is still on the run with her friend from her band, um, and she starts telling him some stories of the ghosts, which I really hope we continue to see more of, because they are fascinating stories and incredibly unique and very interesting. Uh, the ghosts apparently think that Ami is one of them, a part of the house, and Ami tells her friends that at this point she kind of understands that she is. Something inside her changed because of her time with the house, and it's never going to be the same again. Meanwhile, Meg, who was the girl who 
uh, survived the house and is covered in her friend's blood. She now knows that the blood is her friends, so she is constantly wearing them <laughs> so they're able to see. At least that's what she says. Um, she wears like this giant helmet with these multiple eyes across the front with a big skeleton mask. It is terrifying and I adore it. It is so cool and well designed. Um, Ami and her friend, they go to a punk show, as I said, does happen in this issue, but she is followed by the ghost Marky, who is a little boy ghost with the uh, Transformers mask on. Um, and we, we learn his death is one of the deaths that we learn about in this. He, um, apparently accidentally died due to bleach inhalation. Um, it says that he likes to make things when he was, a, when he was a real living boy. Um, and he had overheard men on the beach talking about being stronger together. Um, he's talking about Nazis and they do talk about that in the concert because it's a punk concert. They're anti-Nazi. They're anti everything like that. White, white supremacy, homophobia, all of that. Um, so I guess this town that I think they're in Seattle and it's got some problems with white supremacists. It's the nineties. What can you say? Um, so this little boy encountered these white supremacists who were talking about how they're stronger together and he likes making things. So he made them together. <laughs> their bodies, their flesh, their limbs, all one horrifying, monstrous being. It's So then you get this white supremacist goop monster banging down the doors of the concert while they're playing an anti-Nazi song. Um, and I really do appreciate, A, a very clear statement here, and B, how this was put in. Uh, you got probably a line and a half of shitty Nazi rhetoric before the bubbles, the speech bubbles coming from the the bodies. Now remember, this is multiple people who have been squished into one. So there's a bunch of heads, there's a bunch of random limbs falling off of it as it moves. Uh, and the different heads are saying all of these horrible things. And it's about one and a half bubbles that you can actually read it in before the Ami's narration slaps over him and says, you know the rhetoric, fill in the blanks if you want. Ooh, yeah. And then it continues. Once they defeat the monster, it says, that's the thing with that kind of rhetoric. It doesn't hold together. Not properly, not coherently. All it takes is a little push. And the monster body falls apart. It's, it's a metaphor, right? It's talking about actual rhetoric and talking about actually the monster. So it falls apart. Limbs, body parts, pieces coming apart all grossly. It's nasty. Um, but incredibly... Uh, clear the statement here that's being made and I love it <laughs> of course this ends up being on the news because I mean Nazi body monster attacks concert <laughs> it ends up on the news um, and Meg sees it and her ghosts see it so we can pretty much assume that their search for uh, Ami and the house is over they know where they are now um, we're gonna see that happen probably in the next issue Marauders number 23 was really fun. I'm just going to go through this really quickly. Um, the character of Tempo was very enjoyable in this. She immediately drops into the scene and just looks around and says, this all seems sus. <laughs> oh my God, I love it. Um, I also love reading Emma Frost in action. Always. She is calm. She is classy. She is on top of things. I adore it. Um, I, I really just want this to kind of be... The, the Emma being a bad bitch book because I know in the last issue we had that whole thing um, 
that, yeah, that was a Marauders issue where it was revealed that um, uh, Lord Chantal was not dead, uh, had not died due to Shaw, basically, uh, some years ago. She is alive, or had been alive. Who knows where she is now? But um, I just want this to be the bad bitch Emma book, uh, proving everybody wrong, kind of. So, love it. Uh, meanwhile, the only other half of the plot was the Cuckoos, who are still trying to help Wilhelmina, who was one of the Verendi children who were evil and mad at the mutants for being successful, basically, is what it was. Um, they've kind of filled her in on her trauma and helped her heal enough to address that with her abuser. Um, so they're there and they make sure she's okay. And then they psychically tell all of the neighbors what he did to his own daughter. And so they throw her abuser out the window, killing him. And I feel like that is, you know, pretty good justice. Uh, there's also a funny scene. I don't know if there was purpose to this, but the cuckoos leave the building and they pass some like angry anti-mutant guy and they say, or they, they think to him so that he does the stuff, punch your teeth out. Now forget math. Math. No, make him remember math. <laughs> I'm sorry. I thought that was hilarious. Um, just, I just want this to be Emma and the cuckoos just bitch slapping the world. That's all I want from Marauders now. <laughs> Uh, Spider-Woman number 14, I am still head over heels with Carla Pacheco writing Spider-Man. Um, and in this issue, I really had to take a moment to appreciate how phenomenally well Perry Perez draws the motion of this comic. Between, uh, like, montages of fight scenes and really bizarre movements between, you know, Spider-Woman and her friend who are here. Um, everything is very clear. There's no muddled art. There's no questioning what's happening in the frame. It's all very clear um, and straightforward, but not simple. Um, just clear. It's, it's well thought out, elegant and clear. Um, so Jessica's old friend, Lindsay, who was from way back in the day, she has moved into Jess's house from LA because Roger left. Thank God I hated that. Um, she or I should say Jessica, goes to her brother to confront him about this basically evil crap he's been doing. She meets his girlfriend, Rose. Turns out Rose ended up getting some of the powers that they were messing around with. Um, and then she comes back later and sees that Rose superpowered the machine that she did that to herself with and tried it on her brother. Um, so he turns into a new spider villain. He apparently chooses the name... Aeternum. I don't know what that means. I didn't look it up. Sorry. Um, but he looks creepy and spider villainy and his own daughter, who is the reason that he's been doing all this stuff because he's supposed to be healing her um, because she's sick. She walks in and witnesses that and is horrified because why would you not be? Your dad just became a spider villain and you're no healthier. <laughs> I love this series. <laughs> Eat the Rich number one. This is a fun indie comic that I picked up this week. Um, <laughs> there is a lovely Jenny Frizen cover if you are out there and see it at all. I dug this. I am probably going to pick up the next couple of issues. I don't know how many it's going to be of. I may have said before. I just don't remember. The story is a, you know, normal girl woman. She is headed to her boyfriend's family's house to, with, with him to meet the family and they're having a party there. It is some kind of family servant retirement party. This family is uber wealthy to the point of discomfort for people who are not as wealthy as they are. Um, and she immediately feels like she does not fit into this world for obvious reasons. 
She also starts noticing there is something really odd going on with the maids to and the and the help, but she doesn't really know what it is, and she starts noticing really weird things happening with the party. So she goes outside for some fresh air, trying to just clear her mind, and she accidentally witnesses the butler who was retiring, uh, going running down the beach, being hunted down by the rich men, killed, and then cut up and barbecued by the rich people. So, um, Eat the rich is a funny thing. <laughs> uh, I'm going to pick up the second issue and see what the hell's going on because that is disturbing and awesome. And I love it. I mentioned in Kang the Conqueror on here. It was good. Um, I'll probably have, my husband will probably read it and he'll probably be more into it than I am. Um, it's basically an origin story for Kang. Um, this version of this origin story is where young Kang from the 31st century um, he is approached by fully formed adult Kang who takes him off into the Crustaceous period to learn. Uh, he ends up falling in love with a woman from a secret tribe we didn't know ever existed back then. Kang destroys her village in, in like anger because he, you know, connected to this girl. Uh, so young Kang ends up stealing old Kang's suit to travel through time and accidentally arrives at Ramatut's empire. So, um, I guess he's probably just going to be ju time jumping through different periods of different Kangs, uh, that he's going to have to face starting now with Ramatut in the next issue. There were some mention, there were some mentions of Ravona, who we know from the Loki TV show is Ravona Renslayer. Um, I guess, I, I mean, I already knew I spoke about it when we had her in the Loki show. Um, she is, um, <laughs> She is, is romantically involved with him or has been at, at several times in the comics. And uh, here we can clearly see that he is distraught that she is no longer with him. So, um, I mean, we'll see what kind of happens with this. I'm, I'm curious. I'm curious. I am made curious. Um, I think it'll probably be fairly decent. Uh, I will keep you posted on how the second issue goes. I did read a few stories from the last issue of Superman Red and Blue, which is the anthology Superman series. This was issue six. Uh, the, Soki, the, the Sophie Campbell story about Streaky the Supercat was fantastic. It was just like her Batman black and white story about Catwoman. There is no dialogue. And it was from Streaky's frankly adorable perspective. We get to see Superman and Supergirl in fun somewhat alternate designs, packing up the Fortress of Solitude. Streaky is saddened that they keep walking past him without giving him any attention until Supergirl stops and picks him up. And then he sees that Superman has his cat carrier and they're trying to put him in a cat carrier. Um, notoriously, cats do not like cat carriers. So Streaky, using their superpowers, right? Uh, eye blasted apart, flies off destroys some ships out in the ocean in rage. Supergirl and Superman follow behind and, and seal up the ships and save everybody. Uh, it's, it's really funny. Um, and then they move all their stuff to the South Pole, where I guess they're going for this time of year. And we get to see Streaky uh, finally come back and be like, okay, I'm in a better mood now. <laughs> It's just a fun little cat story. Um, and if you, in case you were wondering, Streaky the Super Cat first appeared in Action Comics number 261 in February 1960. Um, looked a bit like a dog in those first few appearances, but that's okay. Art, is, art has gotten better over the years. 
there was also a Tom King uh, story in this uh, issue of Superman Red and Blue. I enjoyed it. It was it was fun. It was good. Um, he's really great with these anthology stories because he tends to find like a single character and tell the, uh, tell the story around their life or experiences. And so in this one, it was a waitress at the Smallville. Uh, diner, I guess, where Clark uh, spent much of his childhood going to with his parents and then with his, his uh, you know, girlfriends, with Lana, with his kids, and so on and so forth. So full circle to when the woman is an old woman and Clark is fully grown with his children there the way his father took him. God of Tremors was a one-shot that was interesting. <laughs> um... Eh, eh. I'll just, I'll just, okay. It's, it's gonna, it's gonna be weird, but I'll just go through it in a quick line or two. Uh, there's a young boy. He's a son of a priest. Um, because he develops epilepsy, he is thought to be a major masturbator. So he is taken out of the world, uh, and they bind his hands at night and basically torture him. Um, he comes across some demonic shit in the woods, dark and spooky. Um, but then doesn't really lead up to anything. Um, I don't know. Uh, it was fine. Uh, Catwoman. I skimmed this one because I'll, I'm reading this for Poison Ivy and for the Jennifers and covers that are phenomenal. Um, Selena, not knowing that Ivy that she found is not the true Ivy, really feels like a disservice to her character. They've been friends for decades and she's just not going to realize that something here is seriously wrong. Uh, I would also like to add that I skimmed through Batman to see what was going on with Ivy there. Um, she has her college girlfriend is the gardener who I guess has some plant powers herself. Um, uh, she says to Harley that there's clearly something wrong or missing with Ivy. Um, it's obviously the Ivy that Selena's protecting. You just gotta wait and see which book it's gonna pop up in that she's gonna you know, reabsorb that last piece of herself and start doing stuff again, I guess. I don't really know. Um, but that's what I'm here to find out. And I think next issue is a Gotham City Sirens tie, not tie in, but like team up. I think it's the next issue or the issue after that. I'm not sure, but we're going to have Harley, Ivy and Catwoman actually together doing stuff. So hopefully that will lead to something solidified with Ivy and what's going on with her. Uh, finally, Nightwing. Um, I don't read the series. I'm just going to be mentioning it because of stuff that happened in it. Uh, in this issue, Dick Grayson starts the Alfred Pennyworth Foundation, which is more than Batman ever did with his wealth. Uh, it's basically um, uh, whatever the town is that he's in these days. I can't remember. Bloodhaven, right? Yeah, Bloodhaven. Um, he's taking money from Lucius Fox, who now has all of Bruce's wealth, right? The Wayne wealth. Um, and he's taken billions of dollars from Lucius that Lucius is like, okay, because he sees that as a good idea, um, to get a standard living wage for their citizens of Bloodhaven, as well as, um, getting every homeless person off the streets and into a shelter, blah, 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 stuff like that. Um, actually making a difference, right? Um, I really get the feeling that while Lucius obviously recognized that as a good idea because he's a smart man, I really think Bruce would not have let Dick use the money to do that if it was still his money to give. I definitely think he would have found some excuse about not letting people help themselves, um, or some shit, like making it lazy. I don't know. He, he definitely would have said something like that. And I, I low-key think that it was a little bit of a, like, a, uh, um, 
an opportunity that they lost that they did not when when Bruce called to tell Dick congratulations and you you know Alfred would be so proud I think he should have said something like you should have asked me first I would have told you why I don't do that even though he's obviously wrong that's Bruce's mindset is that and it's the whole thing that Cecil Castellucci wrote in Batgirl number 50 how all Bruce does is sit here and beat up people with mental health issues instead of putting his enormous wealth to the actual problem. Um, that's mostly why I wanted to mention that Nightwing development, uh, because it, I think, is very interesting. Um, kudos, I guess, to Tom Taylor and his team for writing that and coming up with that. Um, it's I'm not going to keep reading Nightwing, but Good for them. <laughs> if you're a fan of Nightwing, I'm glad you had a good issue to read this week. <laughs> Let's talk What If Episode 2. This episode premiered on Wednesday night on Disney+. Plus. Well, Wednesday on Disney+. Plus. Uh, this episode was called What If T'Challa Became Star-Lord. This was a really, really fun episode. Um, we had a lot of different takes on characters who we've seen in different ways before, so very exciting and definitely showing the full extent of the fantastic stories they can come up for this What If series. It starts off with the young Wakandan prince uh, wanting to see the world beyond his borders, but he's always been told to stay close by his father. One night he ventures out beyond the, the city borders of Wakanda into a field while he's playing, and he's taken by the Ravagers, who are Kraglin and Taserface, voiced by their movie actors from Guardians of the Galaxy and Guardians of the Galaxy 2, Sean Gunn and Chris Sullivan. They are here sent by Yondu, who is again voiced by Michael Rooker from the movie. Um, they've been sent to pick up the missing kid. It's supposed to be Peter Quill. Um, but when they bring him back to Yondu, he immediately knows this is the wrong kid, uh, for obvious reasons, but he ends up seeing the adventurer in young T'Challa and decides to just go with it and they keep him. <laughs> keep the kid that he accidentally stole. As an adult, years later, I think it's like 20 years later, T'Challa is Star-Ward. Oh my god, I just said Star-Ward. Star-Lord. Chadwick Boseman. He is, um, the last... I want to say the last he's one of the last things that Chadwick Boseman ever did for his career before he passed cancer in 2020 to absolutely everybody's surprise besides his own family. Um, mad kudos to him for living out his last days in such strength and compassion and dignity that we didn't even know there was anything wrong. Um, not everybody has that opportunity, of course, but... Um, Chadwick Boseman was the way they, they they of course ended the episode with um, to our beloved friend or Chadwick Boseman and they left it up there on the screen for a solid 20 seconds and I could not say anything because I knew my voice would crack <laughs> um, that still it still hits pretty hard that loss is not somebody who most of us knew personally but we felt that loss pretty personally still pretty close to a chest so um very nice to hear his voice with uh, Star-Lord, if it was a little bit pulling on the heartstrings. So, uh, this Star-Lord, who is T'Challa, he is actually a legendary hero who steals from the rich and gives to the poor like Robin Hood. He actually leads the Ravagers now, who are basically just his merry men. And it's hilarious because it shows just how trash Peter Quill really is. When he got taken, he just became another shitbag Ravager lackey. T'Challa actually made a crazy impact of positivity 
on the whole universe being put in the exact same position. Peter Quill ain't shit. <laughs> uh, the scene from Guardians of the Galaxy where we first meet Star-Lord is repeated here by T'Challa, who is clearly far superior to Quill in every way. He uses better tech and he's obviously much smarter, and I think he's funnier too. And he dresses better. When he is stopped by the guards, this well, it's by Rodin's people, they actually recognize him, and Korath, who is voiced by Jumon, I think I said that wrong, I'm sorry, Hounso, I'm sorry, no, I know I said that wrong, Hounso, I'm sorry, um, he's awesome though, yeah, he's, he's the actor from Guardians of the Galaxy who played Korath too, so great, uh, he sees, <laughs> he recognizes Star-Lord and gets all excited, Star-Lord, of course, beats them in their fight and decides to take Korath to join their team of Ravagers, just, just kind of kit person naps him, says, you're with us now. <laughs> Uh, not only did he completely change the Ravagers, he changed Nebula too, and possibly more importantly, motherfucking Thanos! He convinced Thanos, somehow, that there is a better way to save the universe than cutting out half of it. Um, nobody in Avengers could do that. I, mean, I don't think anybody in Avengers really tried to do that, actually, but he did! apparently without violence so that's that's wild and because of that we can assume he was a better father to nebula his adopted daughter she in this version has extremely minimal robotics it seems that she just kind of has a head injury that was replaced with the bits around her eye um and a full head of blonde hair it's a lot like comic nebula did after she was restored in infinity gauntlet and the style of her haircut is really awesome it's stunning on her very 1920s 30s old hollywood it's great uh we have thanos who is of course back voiced by josh brolin of the mcu just as nebula is voiced by her mcu counterpart karen gillen or gillen gillen yeah really happy that they both came back for their characters as well. Um, the plan that they come up with here as a, you know, team or whatever, they decide to rob the collector who is once again voiced by the fantastic Benicio del Toro. Um, but this collector is very different from the one that we saw in the MCU. He is kind of like the top gangster of the galaxy. <laughs> it's, it's pretty wild. Um, clear major use of body mods to make him physically larger and stronger. Um, the, the group of them, they're going to want to steal from him this seed of life kind of thing, which can be used in their minds. They're going to use it to provide food to needy parts of the galaxy, kind of continuing that whole thing of providing for the excess life in the galaxy instead of cutting out the life to not have to provide for that half of them, right? Uh, so they arrive at the collector's collection and they see, well, we see how incredibly more successful this collector is in the MCU version. His base is in nowhere, um, but it's the whole thing. It seems all that's in nowhere is just his base. Um, and it is completely filled with containers of specimens and tools and whatnot. Um, Nebula ends up faking a deal with him the collector, uh, while T'Challa is going off to sneak around and look for the seeds, which ends up being an overwhelming task with everything that's in there. And he has to, at one point, let out Howard the Duck, once again voiced by Seth Green, to kind of be his guide. It does not work out very well. Um, but he does find a haul of ships that the collector has, including one that responds to T'Challa and the childhood Wakandan necklace that he continues to wear as an adult. 
turns out that it is a Wakandan ship, which he enters and it starts an auto message about why the ship was out there in space. You get a virtual King T'Chaka, who is voiced by John Canny once again from the MCU. He speaks of the loss of their prince and a nation who mourned so much they took to the stars in search of him. The thing is, um, T'Challa had been told by Yondu years ago that Wakanda had been destroyed, which clearly wasn't really true. Uh, so before T'Challa has a chance to leave, he is captured by the Collector and Nebula, who it looks like is double-crossing him. Uh, so he goes to a cell with Yondu. Yondu explains, you know, he saw T'Challa was a natural-born explorer and, and made the command decision not to send him home and to lie to him instead. Okay, whatever, bad fathers. Um, then it turns out that Nebula is actually triple-crossing somebody? I don't know. She's she's doing a triple-cross here. Um, so T'Challa knew about the plan the whole time. This is all part of the plan. Uh, what it comes down to is them fighting um, the Collector. Yondu ends up saving uh, T'Challa. And then Karina, who is the little servant lady of the Collector, she's played by Ophelia Lovey Bond once again, as from the MCU. She ends up saving them from the Collector, which is awesome because she did get killed in Gardens of the Galaxy trying to uh, escape and hurt him. So she does end up getting to live here and as like a karmic thing, um, she kind of uh, lets all of the collection have at him, you know, and do what they will. Um, so they have to fight the, uh, the Black Order who work for the Collector. Um, and they eventually end up planting the seeds in the, in the, one of the Black Order guys to, 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 to kill him. Um, and it explodes into plants and takes over the whole place. Um, Thanos and Nebula adopt Cosmo, the space dog, so it would seem, and T'Challa returns to Wakanda, where T'Chaka is still alive alongside his mother and sister. The episode ends with the fate of this world's Peter Quill, who we know is trash now. He is voiced by Brian T. Delaney, which is no big loss, in my opinion. Uh, he is found by Ego, once again voiced by Kurt Russell of the MCU, and at this point, we can really assume that Ego's evil plan from Guardians kind of just happens here. Doesn't mean this world got a happy ending. It just means that um, things went differently than they did in the main canon MCU. We had one line from Okoye in this um, in this episode, which was voiced by her actress Denai Garia. We have Proxima Midnight was played by Carrie Coon, who played her originally, and she did have a couple of lines here. Ebony Ma was played by his counterpart, Tom Van Vaughn, oh, Vaughn Lawler, that's quite a name. Uh, Drax is played by Fred Tatiskior, and apparently Dave Bautista has already come out and said that they didn't even ask him to voice Drax, which, you know, if you come out and say that you're gonna quit your job if a director doesn't get reinstated, they're, they're probably not gonna be as friendly with you as they were if you didn't, just my guess here. Um, and that actor, Fred Tatiskior, he also played Corvus Glaive, uh, one of the Ebony Ma, who was instead of the actor Michael James Shaw, who voiced him for the MCU. Uh, then we had Queen Ramonda, Shuri, and Cole Obsidian were also characters who appeared but had no lines. Very happy with this episode. This was such a fun watch, um, especially with the Thanos and Nebula. This man got Thanos to 
to get off his high horse of we gotta destroy half the universe. And it's really funny because there's a lot of jokes about it. And then there's, um, you know, he has like bits and co- pieces of conversations with people like explaining what his thought process was and stuff. It's really funny. Thanos as, as like a good guy, decent father is is quite something. Um, I'm not sure what the next episode is, but it is going to be premiering on Wednesday once again. And we will be discussing it on next Friday's podcast, episode 31B. So keep an eye out for that. Let's talk next, Titans, Season 3, Episode 4. This episode premiered on HBO Max today. (laughs) What day is it? Today I'm recording this on Thursday. So it's it's up on HBO Max now, whenever you're listening to this, because I've seen it, so it's up there. Um, This episode is called Blackfire. So I did a little research on Blackfire before I I watched this, and I would like to read this all to you because... It gives a lot of insight to her character, and we do meet her character in this, of course, which makes sense. So, uh, let's get to know Blackfire here. Her name is Cor- Cor- Ugh, I'm already messing it up. Her name is Commander. K-O-M-A-N-D apostrophe R, as similar to Coriander, how she has K-O-R-I-N-D dash or apostrophe R. Coriander and Commander, you get it, they're sisters. Commander was the oldest child in their Tamaranian family. Apparently, in these days in the comics, she lives on Ran right now, which is interesting to me because that's where Strange Adventures is taking place in part, so kind of a missed opportunity there, Tom King. Uh, She was created by Marv Wolfman and George Perez. Her first appearance was... New Teen Titans number 22 in August of 1982, which is not to be mistaken with New Teen Titans volume 2 number 22, which is another issue issue featuring Starfire and Blackfire. Um, but it goes for a pretty standard market value as far as, um, you know, as first appearances versus the high dollar one. Um, so, so be careful if you're looking for a first appearance and you see Teen Titan, New Teen Titans 22, make sure you have volume one and not volume two. Volume two does feature her, um, in that issue, um, but it's not her first appearance. So I have a direct quote from the, uh, the command, the commander, the Blackfire wiki page, because it is just brutal how they summarize why commander hates her sister. And I, I sympathize with this, you know, just a bit. It says, The first princess born over a hundred years. She should have been courted and showered with honors. On the day she was born, the Citadel Empire attacked and destroyed the western Tamarind city of Kisar, killing 3,000 citizens in her name. Though she was in no way at fault for what happened, Commander was for all time inextricably linked with that terrible day. To make matters worse, Commander had been stricken with a childhood illness that left her unable to harness ultraviolet light to fly as most Tamaranians did. Commander grew up hated by the Tamaranian population, who decided her birthright, who denied her birthright and refused to allow her to be part of to be the next princess of Tamarin. All of her queenly privileges, honors, and celebrations were later given to her younger sister, Coriander. Commander's rage grew inward, and whenever she could, her hatred for her planet was focused on her hapless sister. So you get a fair amount of understanding as to why there is some tenseness between their relationship. (laughs) Uh, After this... 
Uh, the sisters were sent to combat training on the warlords of Okara, where they, uh, or war worlds, I guess, of Okara, where uh, things kind of came to a head when Commander tries to kill Coriander and ends up getting kicked off, kicked out, rather. Um, she then goes and joins the Citadel, who are like the enemies, uh, uh, an extremist sect, really. Um, and quickly becomes their leader. She leads a successful evasion on her home planet, enslaves her own sister, and never allows her, swears that she will never allow her to return to Tamarin. Cory spends a year under her sister's cruel punishment until she's able to kill one of her rapists. Yes, I said cruel punishment, because, wow. Um, causing her execution to be called for. But before it could go through, both sisters are attacked by scions who are, not even kidding, lizard people, um, and they get experimented on. While Commander Citadel forces are able to free her, or rather attack to attempt to free her, Cory is able to escape in the fighting with her newfound green power blast as a result of that experimentation. She attempted to free her older sister, who developed similar but purple blasts, but Coriander ends up attacked, attacked, or sorry, Commander ends up attacking Coriander, and they split up as Cory ends up on Earth, forming the Teen Titans. Much later, in a fight years down the line with her sister, uh, Cor Commander Blackfire is supposedly boiled alive in a river and dies. Uh, we find out later that she lived, but she was blinded. She retrains until she can regain her eyesight miraculously and is ready to take the throne again. But then she loses her lover. Because of this, she starts a Tamaranian civil war, takes up the throne, invades Ran, gets into war with Thanagar, kills Hawkwoman, and then Hawkman takes away her powers. She returns repowered. And tries to get her people, uh, tries to take over New Ran for her people, and ends up making a deal with Adam Strange and Vril Docks, the latter of which she starts a relationship with. When he is taken by Starro, she goes off and insists on fighting for him. It's noteworthy that uh, the sisters harness ultra power light or ultraviolet light. Uh, in the show, all we really see is that Starfire so far just has standard flame energy powers. So picking up with this episode, um, kind of just where we saw the last one end, um, more or less with the death of uh, Hawk, which is Hank. Um, so we start off a few days later, I assume. Red Hood appears to get a guard to threaten and attack Scarecrow in prison, uh, seemingly because he knows that he helped Nightwing um, track him down, etc. in the last episode. As I predicted, Connor Kent does blame himself, of course, because he is half Lex Luthor, he thinks that he, everybody was just waiting for him to mess up. Dawn is smart enough to recognize that it's her fault. She pulled the trigger, um, but she can't do this anymore. She needs to take off to Paris and not be Dove for a while. So um, she's worried about Dick, um, and by that I mean uh, Dick Grayson, not the person that she's replacing Hank with. But um bum uh, <laughs> I don't know if that joke made any sense to people, but okay. <laughs> um, Babs, Barbara, who is the commissioner, she calls Dick to fill him in on the Arkham hit or the attempted Arkham hit and tells him that they're going to be moving uh, Scarecrow, who is Crane, right, to Blackgate. I'm guessing he's going to escape in transit before we even get there. Obvious guess, right? 
Uh, Beast Boy back in the house makes a joke about doing everybody's housework and crisis counseling, which honestly is fair. Uh, Corey is, walks into the room, but she's all gone the way she has been recently and she attacks him. She's in a trance. My guess at this point was that she's being taken over by Blackfire somehow, uh, some way. When she comes to, Beast Boy tells her to stay away from him, even though she's clearly confused, which is Loki out of character. Uh, she does call her doctor friend, but doesn't really get anywhere because he kind of just wants to get laid. So she goes back and asks Gar for help after, um, after all that. And he takes her to a sensory deprivation tank where she starts having another one of his, her visions or whatever. And we get to see this time. She is having visions of Blackfire being taken into experimentation or something. Meanwhile, Scarecrow is being taken out of Arkham. Dick, a true idiot, takes out the guards and takes the Scarecrow off on his own in his fancy little car. We do get to see that Red Hood was hiding around the corner for them, but I still call Dick an idiot. Because how could that possibly be a good idea? <laughs> And there's a really funny line from uh, from Crane here. <laughs> I'm an alpha man myself. <laughs> R- really? <laughs> it was really funny. The delivery of all of his lines as somewhere between internet troll and IRL troll is just so spot on. Fantastic job to this actor. Uh, Corey then wakes up in a car, not a sensory deprivation tank. She has... Um, you know, kidnapped Gar, I guess, and just wound up here after another trance state. As she gets out of the car and we see her, honestly, fabulously toned legs and side booty, I find myself again in awe that there are men out there claiming to be sexually attracted to women who find this representation of her as unattractive or even, as they say, ghetto. Um, Since when has a fit black dark-skinned woman with thick curls, amazing makeup, killer fashion sense, and even better accessorizing been a negative thing. Guys, she is a total fucking snack. She is a whole ass meal. How are you saying this is... Uh, like, wow, guys. Are you sure you like women? <laughs> I mean, she's a... She's wow. <laughs> uh, so yeah, guards in the trunk. Uh, he is a dumbass who has not figured out that she is not doing this to him on purpose. Um, but I guess they kind of work their way through that. Uh, we get a little bit of more discussion about her relationship with Blackfire. Uh, she did kill their parents and Corey is clearly a little afraid from her. Apparently the last time they saw each other, Blackfire quote unquote cooked her boyfriend. Apparent, allegedly, allegedly. Um, they find a hatch under the car because Corey's kind of figuring out, I'm supposed to be here. There's something here I'm supposed to see. They go down the hatch and what they find is, uh, some science dude holding Blackfire in a cell under red lights. Um, and he gets all nerdy and excited about seeing them show up. Uh, so good for him. Back at the precinct, Babs, Barbara, has until midnight to get Dick to surrender Crane because now everybody knows what's happened. And the guy, I, I had this moment here where this the dude says this line and I lost my mind. And uh, he says, you have until midnight, then it's a BOP matter. I'm sorry, what did you just say? BOP? When I hear BOP, I think birds of prey. Does Gotham have birds of prey on their, like, Payroll? 
I did a Google. No, it's not Birds of Prey. It's Bureau of Prisons. So I was really excited for about five minutes. And then I lost it. I was wrong. <laughs> um, so Dick and uh, Dick and Crane finally stop. Crane tries to escape because he's an idiot too uh, and gets caught in a trap. Dick finally gets them to a cabin. This was uh, where Bruce took them to train them. Uh, he he uh, finally tells Scarecrow he knows what's going on. The attack, which was the beginning of the episode where someone tried to shank the Scarecrow, supposedly, allegedly, uh, that attack was set up to get Scarecrow out of Arkham specifically. Turns out, Red Hood is his protege, and he's gonna come get him. Um, he is another place that he knows is he has uh, familiar, similar between... <laughs> I'm jumbling my words. It's a place that he and Dick have similarly in their history, so he knows that's where he's gonna have taken Scarecrow, and Dick knows that's where he's going to go looking for him. So, um, he is right. It turns out Scarecrow does a bit to all of this. Um, it's kind of nuts. I guess after the last season of Titans, I guess, uh, he, Dick kind of abandoned, um, abandoned Jason and he came to Scarecrow to, be rebuilt is what Scarecrow says. Scarecrow does mention the little witch girl and mute boy. I know the little witch girl is obviously good old what's her name? Um, Raven. Raven? Yeah. Uh, not sure about the mute boy, but I didn't spend too long thinking about it, so I'm sure I'll figure it out in a second here. Um, back of the lab, the scientist guy says that Blackfire is a hostile towards the world, so they shut her down. Basically, he's a part of the DOD, Department of Defense. Uh, they do let Corey into the cell to speak with her. She addresses her sister directly as commander. They have a whole conversation. She says, you're just as broken as you've ever been, ever since we were kids. There's mentions of a pit of Zal's mouth, uh, which is apparently a prison for a child. Uh, they speak of Cory being Tamarin's favorite princess, never standing up for her sister, who fought back when she was punished, so they punished her even harder for it. But in her mind, it was always harder than Cory from the start. Possibly was. And it turns out that Fade, the boyfriend who we had, uh, Cory told Gar that her sister cooked, he was actually killed by Starfire in a mercy kill. Um... <laughs> pretty intense so she leaves the room and as she leaves the room angrily her sister in the cell says I am who I am because of you Coriander and gives her this deep dramatic bow god the acting between these two is just phenomenal you get like this she's I don't, I'm not sure what her name is she's playing commander but she's like this over dramatic body acting thing where her with her hands and her arms and her face she's doing such a phenomenal job showing that she's crazy and like kind of unhinged and has been through a lot and just ooh i love it so the scientist guy explains that while um the cell that she's in is kind of negating her powers they could easily return if she gets out which is clear foreshadowing um barbara is we have these back and forth, right? So Barbara sends a helicopter to go find Dick. Okay. Back at the lab. Starfire. Um, her her conscience gets the best of her. And so she ends up going back and breaking out her sister. 
Once again, this episode is just like, everybody's an idiot. <laughs> the scientist is looking at her armor, which we get our first look of here. It's pretty cool. Um, he tries to block their path, and we get this fantastic line. Get out of my way or I'm going to burn your dick off. There's a strong chance your fire bolts aren't at full power yet. Do you want to find out? And she just walks past him. Oh my god, I love Corey so much. Um, and I do have to stop here because I try to pay attention to this kind of stuff. I do have to know that while Coriander has very glowy, light-colored eyes, Commander's eyes are dark. I have to wonder if when she gets her powers back, they will change to something lighter as well. Or if HBO is kind of failing me a little bit here and giving the evil black sister, um darker eyes because that's just a trope you know they give the lighter eyes to the good sister and the darker eyes it's, it's a thing that it's a recurring pattern in hollywood okay <laughs> but we'll see if that turns out to mean something else so um nightwing and red hood right back there at the cabin red hood eventually shows up they fight at this point i guess we have the answer to how did red hood make all this happen and I guess it's got to be Scarecrow. Scarecrow must have arranged the body swap, must have helped him through the chemistry stuff to get whatever that stuff was that he was doing. Um, I assume even planned him killing himself with the Joker, technically, um, so that he could then come back as Red Hood. That's all what I'm assuming right now, that this is all part of the plan. Um, Crane tries to make a run for it and hits a force field. Once again, he's an idiot. And then the helicopter shows up um, to try and take out Jason. They miss, hit Dick instead, and Jason escapes with Crane. Everybody's an idiot. <laughs> um, I really, really enjoyed this episode, if you could not tell. I had a lot of fun picking apart the relationship between Coriander and Commander. I am so excited to see whatever the hell it's going to be that happens between the two of them. We know that she's going to be a villain. She's Commander. She's Blackfire. She's a villain. It's, it's how it is in the comics. Um, but I would really dig it if we got to see the two of them team up together for some amount of time, whatever amount of time that may be, and not just fight constantly. Um, right now, Blackfire does not have powers that she can access, but apparently she does have powers. So uh, we'll have to wait and see what part of their backstory that I kind of went over at the beginning of this um this section of the podcast. We're gonna have to wait and see what part of that is gonna translate into the HBO Max show. Um, right now, we can assume that a lot of the early life stuff, the favorite princess of Tamarin, the probably str being stronger than her older sister from a very young age, that probably all holds true to the show. Um, but we'll have to wait a little bit and see more details than that. What I'm really hoping, to be honest, I'm hoping we get to see some flashbacks to their life on Tamaran. Because what a better way to show us what happened between them and their whole family history. Just give us a flashback. Show us Tamarin. Show us them mining these Moldavite crystals for their necklaces. I'm still just, still just my headcanon. It's not real. Um, <laughs> show their, their horrible history. Show what happened with her boyfriend that she had to mercy kill him due to Blackfire. What the hell, man? Like, Starfire, you told everybody she killed your boyfriend, but you killed your boyfriend. 
what? <laughs> uh, I would love to see that backstory. Um, I, you know, the, the, the Red Hood and Dick side of things, it's going well. Um, but we all know it's just going to be a major train wreck for a long time before anything gets solved. So I'm really, I'm, I'm just digging the Starfire Blackfire plot right now. That's my favorite part of the show right now. Um, <laughs> I'm excited for what's going to happen. This is only the fourth episode. I'm imagining we get six to 10 in this season. I don't remember. I think it was 10 or 12 in the first two seasons. So we got a good while to let this stuff develop. Um, and to let Commander power up secretly, I assume, um, before she tries to attack and do whatever it is that she wants to do. I don't know. I'm ready for it, though. I'm here for it. Let's, let's shut up and get on to the next thing. Okay. <laughs> next up, we are going to discuss the two trailers that came out this week. One of them was earlier this week. The Star Wars Visions trailer came out in Japanese and in English. And the other one was the Eternals trailer. It was the plot trailer is what I call it. And that came out just this morning on the 19th, which is Thursday. Um, starting with the Visions trailer. Star Wars Visions is being created by seven anime studios to create nine different stories. There is a quote here from James Waugh who is the executive producer and Lucasfilm vice president of franchise content and strategy. Wow, that's a mouthful. His quote says, Lucasfilm is partnering with seven of the most talented anime studios in Japan to bring their signature style and unique vision to the Star Wars galaxy to this inspired new series. Their stories showcase the full spectrum of bold storytelling found across Japanese animation, each told with a freshness and voice that expands our understanding of what a Star Wars story can be and celebrates a galaxy that has been such an inspiration to so many visionary storytellers. That's all you need to know to be into this, but I got more information. It's an anthology series. They are not necessarily canon stories. It premieres September 22nd. They feature, based on this trailer, a little bit of everything that we love about Star Wars and then some. Uh, as I said, there were English and Japanese trailers because this is originally recorded in Japanese. I do not have the names of the Japanese voice cast because I would definitely not make it very far before I make a fool of myself trying to pronounce that. Um, so I'm just going to make a fool of myself trying to pronounce the English dub cast. Uh, going along with the episode name, starting with The Duel. was the first episode. It's going to be uh, featuring... Brian T, Lucy Liu, and Jaden Waldman. Tatooine Rhapsody is an episode featuring Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Bobby Moynihan, Tamura Mormison, Mor sorry, Mormison, Morrison, I was coming back as Boba Fett, Shelby Young, and Mark Thompson. The Twins features Neil Patrick Harris, Allison Brie, they're the twins, and Jonathan Lippo. The Village Bride is Karen Fukuhara, Fu Fukuhara, I'm sorry, there I did it again, Nicole Sakura, Christopher Sean, Kerry Hiroyuki Tagawa, I'm trying, I swear, Andrew Kishino, and Stephanie Shea. The Ninth Jedi episode features Kimoko Glenn, or Kimiko Glenn, I'm sorry, Andrew Kishino, Simu Liu, who we all know as Shang-Chi, uh, Masi Oka, Greg Shun, Neil Kaplan, and Michael Sinterniklas. Sinterniklas. Episode TO B1. 
will feature Jaden Waldman and Kyle Chandler. It sounds like that's going to be focused on droids. The episode called The Elder will have David Harbour, Jordan Fisher, and James Hong. The episode Loke and Oko will feature Anna Cath- Cathcart, Hiromi Dames, Paul Nak. Nakauchi and Kyle McCarley. I definitely fudged some of those. And the episode, the final ninth episode, Akakiri. It'll feature Henry Golding, Jamie Chung, George motherfucking Taihei, Keon Young, and Lorraine Toussaint. Uh, the studios, if you are from, if you want to know what the studios that are animating these episodes, and if you're familiar with Japanese animation studios, you may recognize some of these. The studio Kamikaze Duga is doing The Duel. Gino Studio, which I guess is under Twin Engine. I'm not sure. It just says Twin Engine next to it. They are doing the episode Lop and Ocho. Um, oh, those are the guys from... Um, is that right? I think those are the guys from Lop and Ocho. Are those the guys from Rogue One? Whatever. Uh, moving on. Uh, Studio Colorido, also from Twin Engine, is doing Tatooine Rhapsody. Studio Trigger, or the studio called Trigger, rather, is doing The Twins and also The Elder. Kinema Citrus is doing The Village Bride. Science Saru is doing both episodes Akakari and T-O, or T-Zero-B-1. And then the Studio Production IG is doing the episode The Ninth Jedi. This is going to be awesome. Just watching the trailer, you can get a feel for the many different styles of storytelling from sound to characters to plot to animation style. It's going to be delightful. This is starting once again on the 22nd of September. And I, I, there's nothing else that needs to be said here for me to get more excited. Um, supporting Asian creations, Japanese creations, um for one, supporting Star Wars mythology for another, um, a buttload of really awesome voice actors and actresses. It's just going to be really cool. You, you cannot deny that this is going to be really awesome, and I'm excited for it. I'm looking forward to Visions, and I'm looking to forward to discussing all those episodes as they premiere along this podcast. The Eternals trailer 2, I'm calling it the plot trailer. Uh, This is the information that we get from this trailer. It takes place after the second snap. The Eternals seem to have fallen out of touch. They no longer live and work together. Since humans have been brought back, there was enough energy coming into the Earth at one time to initiate something. Presumably, the arrival of their ancient enemy called the Deviants for which they have their one and only role on Earth. Observe humans, stop deviants. In the comics, deviants are basically the opposite spectrum of the Eternals in a way that's how it makes it easier to think about. They all kind of seem to live by the same sorts of rules and abilities, but the Eternals are, you know, good, where the deviants are evil, you know? Uh, It seems in the movie that they're giving the deviants a very symbiotic look, as in Venom and Carnage, kind of appearing to be swirling, inky bodies. However, we also see at one point in this trailer that one of them takes on a more humanoid form, possibly as desired, making me think this must be their leader or in charge or something like that. It's also noteworthy that Thanos is technically a deviant in the comics, 
so I have to wonder if this villain is going to be related to him or his goals in any way. The Eternals in the movie believe they came from, or they came to Earth 7,000 years ago, brought here to watch humans for the Celestials. I say believe because I'm pretty sure that they're going to be going full comic route here and have the Eternals learn along this movie that they are not what they think they are and are not nearly as important to the universe as they definitely thought they were. Anyway, in the trailer, Ajax seems to approach Icarus first. She fills him in on what's going on. Deviants are coming back. They got seven days to prepare for it. My assumption is that they then go off and track one another down, getting all of the Eternals back together for the first time in apparent centuries. They gather under their ship. Oh, sorry. They unearth their ship. I can't read my own handwriting. It's not handwriting, it's typing. Which they supposedly arrived on Earth in 7,000 years ago, sent by the Celestials. There is audio of Gemma Chan's Cersei speaking to Kit Harrington's Dane Whitman slash Black Knight, who asks who the who of sending them there um, and having them wait for the Deviants is. And we get a single what I have to assume foreshortened shot of a really big red Celestial. We see the figure one other time in the trailer when they are all gathered on their uh, Eternals ship or whatever it is, possibly addressing their own creation. Uh, but the Celestial is in that scene on some kind of projection of sorts. I really wonder here if they're not going to go as hard into the Celestials as I thought slash wanted. And I'm kind of getting the feeling from this trailer. Um, it's just a trailer, you know, but I kind of get like that they might kind of want to tone it down for the non-comic readers. Hopefully they're just not wanting to blow all their load here all at once. Um, but I also wonder if this particular celestial, this red one that they refer to supposedly as their creator or whatever, uh, if they're still alive or if all the celestials are dead, like we learned in the recently-ish MU, Marvel Universe, just in the comics, um, and if there are going to be any references to the origin of superheroes on Earth, which was something else that happened in the past couple of years in comics, Jason Aaron introduced this idea how there was this plagued celestial who died on Earth a millennia ago, who is infecting, or I guess rather they're infected like oozing blood leeches into the earth and creates all of the possibility of superheroes and supervillains. That's why earth is the way that it is with all these supers and things. Just because the celestial millions upon millions of years ago died and all of its matter just kind of birthed all of this out. So that's the general gist of it. After the second snap, it comes to their attention that Deviants are coming and they have to reunite to stop them. But we also know that there's going to be more to it. We know that they're going to be bringing the Black Knight in and potentially making their mind control member of their ranks a villain, as he was in part in the most recent comic series. I also have to wonder if they're going to be talking about them being reborn through the machine, something that was established very clearly by Kieran Gillen in that same recent eternal series he also established kind of more interestingly that each time the machine brings one of the eternals back it does so by taking the life force of a human and giving it to them killing the human could that be or could that be what their ship does to keep them alive could the ship be part of the machine 
Um, is it going to talk to them the way the machine does? I don't know, but I am definitely more excited for this movie than I have been yet. Um, so this is, this is going to rock. This is going to rock and I'm excited for it. November, um, I'm ready for it. I'm give me the movie. Is it November? Now I said earlier on that this was going to be a little bit of a extra long podcast episode. And that is due to this discussion of Substack. I have avoided discussing Substack um, so far because I wanted to make sure I gathered as much facts and information um, and everything about that so that I feel prepared to properly discuss it on all facets of what it is and what's going on because it is a really big deal. It is going to majorly affect the comics industry and it is um, potentially the future of comics. So now that I've gotten a lot of information on it, there seems to be a lot of people who are on board uh, and on the other side. So um, here are the points that I'm gonna go over regarding Substack. A, what's going on? B, writers who have joined. C, what is the draw for these writer, well, creators? D, is it sustainable? E, how will this change the industry? And F, what are the criticisms? So those are the points that we're going to go over here to kind of explain what Substack is and how it's affecting things, etc. So starting with what's going on. Basically, creators are leaving most other publishers, but specifically the big two for a massive whopping check from new publisher slash distributor Substack. They will be able to create their own comics own the titles entirely and have non-exclusive contracts, meaning they can work on other projects at the same time. Substack is going to put comics out by subscription. It's roughly seven to $10 a month and 75 to 100 ish per year. But that is per creator who signs up. You can subscribe to different creators. Makes a lot of sense. We're a subscriber culture at this point. Creators are ultimately seen as their own publishing company under Substack, with Substack as their digital distributor. There are also extra large $200 plus subscription levels per, I think it's per year, uh, where you can be let in on a lot more of the intimate parts of the creation progress, or sorry, process, um, in with the, be in with a creator, have exclusives, etc. Theoretically, Paper publishers like Image and Boom could then be used to put out hard copies of the comics because these are digital, similar to how creators often or recently have been funding projects with Kickstarter before getting it published by, cre by publishers, paper publishers. However, there is no guarantee of that happening. Will Image, Boom, etc. want to take the risk of printing comics that have already been read by fans who funded its creation? Honestly, we're just going to have to wait and see, but I am hesitant to think that maybe at all they might think of doing that. Here are some writers who have specifically dropped other projects to pick up Substack checks. It started really mainly with Nick Spencer. He is the one who is honestly poaching a lot of these creators from the big two. Uh, we also have James Tinian. He is bringing his publishing company, 
Tiny Onion Studios, and he has also announced that his final issue of Batman will be November's Batman number 117, and that he will wrap up his run on the Joker in April of 2022 with issue 14. What will happen afterwards with those titles? No one knows yet. Donny Cates is leaving his current projects to bring KLC, which stands for Kids Love Chains. It's really not kids. It's they, they like chains, but like, I don't say, I don't think kids would list that among their favorite things if you asked them. It's a whole, sorry. Uh, Jonathan Hickman is leaving Marvel temporarily, taking a break from X-Men to bring his, his publishing, gosh, this is what I'm going to have to explain in a whole other podcast episode, but it's called Three Worlds, Three Moons. He's bringing that with him. Chip Zarsky is gone to Substack. Saladin Ahmed has brought his Copper Bottle publishing title. Ed Brisson has brought East Coast Dispatches. Ryan Stegman and Molly Ostertag have also joined. Scott Snyder has brought Our Best Jacket, his publishing company. Scott Snyder, or I said Scott Snyder, Scotty Young has brought Stupid Fresh Mess, which I guess is his. Um, and then I have, I, I opened up the, um, the Substack page to log into my Twitter and see what of my Twitter, uh, creators who I follow have also joined Substack. And that includes Rico Renzi, Mike Hawthorne, who I know is officially moved over, Kelly Sudaconic, who has brought milk fed along with her husband, Matt Fraction, I believe, Leah Williams, Kieran Gillen, Jody Hauser, Ramon Perez, and Teeny Howard. Assuming that all of those creators are dropping all of their big two titles, we're going to be seeing some stuff switched up real quick here. Now, what is the draw to Substack, Substack for these creators? According to their site, this is literally something I saw on their site. I copied and I pasted it. Top writers on Substack make millions of dollars a year. That's not something you can say from any publisher in comics right now. There is a quote from James Tynion that I thought was very um, telling. Uh, he has worked for Marvel, DC, Image Boom, and a fair amount of other publishers. And he says, Substack's contract is the best I've ever been given in a decade as a professional comic book writer. A, a grant from Substack to create a new slate of co original comic book properties directly on their platform that my co-creators and I would completely own with Substack taking none of the intellectual property rights or even the publishing rights. Instead, I'm going to dedicate my whole brain to building a bunch of really cool stuff on my own terms without having to get permission from any publishers to make it. That pretty much explains right there a big chunk of why creators are liking the Substack offers. Or at least the ones who are getting the offers, because that's a whole other ballpark again. Uh, Donny Cates and Ryan Stegman uh, were both asked in an interview, Rob Liefeld reckons you've had a $600,000 advance from Substack which they were not able to confirm, obviously. <laughs> um, and there's another quote here. It says, in an industry that has constantly been criticized for not taking care of its creators, this platform is finally giving creators a chance to be independent and make some truly incredible work and be paid for what they are worth. I, for one, think that's pretty rad. That was Donny Cates' quote. Um, there is also the issues at the crunch from the big two has gotten far worse in recent years. It's something that you as a reader can definitely start picking up in the editing. Things not matching up, clothes not being the same across the pages, text bubbles being misaligned that weren't fixed with through editing, etc. 
Artists talk about it online all the time, how the amount of work and time and effort they put into their pages is not at all matched in the checks that they mostly get sometimes on time, not always. No mention of no, no that's not to mention no healthcare, no sick pay, nothing of the sort. Additionally, it's been a pattern recently, especially at DC, that creators are being told to go in a certain direction with legacy characters that don't necessarily match up with already established facts about that character, meaning publishers aren't letting creators write the comics that they think should be being written. That's really bad for the big two, who have this immense catalog of decades-old characters with already established fan bases who will be able to spot these weird new directions that those characters are being taken in. One example that I have here, The Joker. Amanda Connor and Jimmy Palmiotti were on the Word Balloon podcast recently doing an interview talking about how they were told to write The Joker as hip and young, not, quote, mean and shabby. That was the moment that they knew they needed to leave and go creator-honed. I believe they are also on Substack as well. Um, and as I said before, there is the potential... Um, that the digitally published comics can also be released on print in the future through other publishers. However, once again, who's to say if those other publishers are going to want to take that risk and do that? Now, is it sustainable? Honestly, that depends on how successful it is. Substack was given a massive wad of venture capital cash to use just just on poaching creators by getting them a better deal for their own work than can be offered literally anywhere else. If it goes well and the creators continue to do well, they'll probably stick there for a good while. If fans drop off too much though, the system won't be able to fund itself anymore and it will eventually fall apart, sending the creators back to where they will be able to make a dollar or two, the main publishers. In a way, I do see this similar to cable TV taking a backseat in the modern era. Adding together all of your subscription services, it gets apparent that you're probably spending just as much as you would on having cable. Um, possibly even more, but it would take a while for that to bottom out with the fans, you know, adding things up. It's take a while for that to bottom out, assuming that it does. And depending on how things go with the big two for, for the while, fans may find themselves having to choose between paper and digital, as in main publishers versus Substack. There will also be a market for cape comics there will always be a market for cape comics and that is the big two primarily but it might start to fade a bit as readers who want original stories and fresh ideas which they can find at any other publisher or indie publisher now go to substack so the success of substack really will be determined on if they can keep people buying their comics over specifically over the alternatives how will this change the industry? Well, this industry is always evolving, whether we're conscious of it, see it happen or not. It's constantly happening. With all these top tier writers and artists leaving the big two, it's clear that they have a problem of their own coming up, the big two, that is. Lack of people to create their comics. In a way, this might be a good thing. The big two will be able to fill their ranks with new names who carry fresh ideas and the support of a new generation of reader, theoretically. That being said, this makes it more possible for the big two to twist the creators' arms into writing the story the publisher ultimately wants, not the creator or the fan. That takes out a lot of the purpose of even having the good creators when you're just telling them what to write, you know, on paper. 
So this will ultimately come down to how the big two decide to handle the situation, as well as other publishers who were losing their creators to short stack. Now, uh, last thing I want to talk about regarding uh, short stack, sub stack. Oh my God. Uh, What are the criticisms? Now I'm going to start with a quote from Hamish McKenzie, who I believe is like a head of Substack or something. It's a long quote. Sorry. There are a few industries. Okay. I already fucked it up. There are few industries where we feel Substack. The Substack model could be more game changing than in comics where the gap in power and earning potential between publishers and for hire creators is enormous and where the creator of a story can spawn a nine figure franchise and yet take home little more than a standard paycheck. On Substack, comic creators are their own publishers, and they are guaranteed full ownership of their intellectual property, content, and mailing lists like any other publisher on the platform. These creators are supported by Substack Pro packages designed to kickstart going independent and remove the risks of starting a publishing enterprise. What We do that by providing a financial guarantee combining with combined with access to services, support, and community. These packages include upfront grants, design, and editing services of the creators choosing that Substack subsidizes and monthly stipends to help out with the costs of health insurance. The freedom and independence that deals offer are lasting. The grants give these creators the best possible runway to build their own audiences. At the end of the pro program, creators are free to leave and take these audiences with them if they want to. It's up to us to build an ecosystem good enough that they won't. That is a quote from Hamish McKenzie, somebody who's up there in the ranks of Substack. Now, uh, there are, that's, that's, I wanted to list that to be fair before I list the criticisms because there are a fair amount of criticisms. The number one criticism, um, taking away businesses from local comic shops is an issue. (laughs) Um, This is Substack um, taking potentially these creations from other publishers means taking them from comic shops, period. Local comic shops won't be making a buck off of shit Substack does unless they somehow get through to paper publishing on the other end, which again is absolutely not guaranteed. Um, the second thing that is a major criticism of Substack is that they are not taking very much care in their morals, which I'm going to explain now. So, um, (laughs) Substack apparently funds a number of blatantly offensive newsletters as well as writers, some of whom have been specifically kicked off of other platforms for their toxic writing. I have a quote from comics journalist Sherilyn Eaton. What has horrified so many about Substack is that the platform has gone to the next level beyond plausible deniability. Curation. Bringing in abusers and separatists and paying them. Platforming them so that their hate speech can drive those out can drive those who they've deemed undesirable away. That is a difference that is completely demoralizing because it's one thing to refuse to excise hate mongers, yet treat them as unpleasant bit of refuse that you are unable to get rid of, though Twitter can get rid of them. The trolling, the antagonizing of the marginalized for their inherent traits. That's what keeps the audience selling hatred and disruption. 
We also have a quote from cartoonist Alex Schumacher, who was saying, I'm neither impressed nor excited by the Substack announcements. They're just another company exploiting, exploiting and catering only to established names while neglecting up-and-coming independent creators. Cream in your jeans if you'd like, but this does nothing for the industry as a whole. A minimal amount of research also reveals Substack's complicity in providing a platform for transphobic and alt-right bigots. It would appear some creators are perfectly content to turn a blind eye in exchange for a quick payday. Harsh words, but fair. <laughs> And I would also like to add uh, Paul Cornell, who writes a number of things, Walk with Monsters, The Modern Frankenstein, and Doctor Who and elementary TV shows. He writes, I don't think it's possible to be a neutral publisher anymore. In the 1980s, sure, published books from right to left. But back then, right didn't include what it includes now. I won't support a platform, platform that funds hate. I don't judge those who took that work, but no. No, no. I want to shout out to, I'm sorry, I don't know these names. It's someone Wassel and Damien Wassel. I'm guessing they're a couple. And the company that they've built at Vault Comics who put ethics first and make great art too. They've made a good place to make comics. So we have fair criticisms here between the issues of taking away business from local comic shops, in a sense, taking away business from up and coming creators and really not having much say much uh differentiation between who it is that you're accepting to be your creators versus not it is a bit problematic and you can see that clearly through these quotes here um however there is one thing that i would like to say here if you're going to subscribe to anybody on substack it should be chip zarsky or molly ostertag and there is one reason for that and i will read it in this quote from chip zarsky I noticed fellow Substack professional Molly Ostertag is donating her subscriber money to charity, and I think that's a swell idea. So I'm going to do the same. Because this year has been generously funded by a Substack grant, that's the pro program they were talking about, I'm going to donate my portion of the year's subscription money to Rainbow Railroad, a great nonprofit that works to help LGBTQIA plus people face, who face persecution globally find safety. It's a great organization. That it is, Chip, and you should definitely look into Rainbow Railroad if you would like to donate to them in any way. They are nonprofit, as it does say. This is an excellent response to the problematic factors of Substack because it is actively working against those pro pro problematic factors. And I have to give major kudos to Molly Ostertag and to Chip Zarsky for taking that initiative. Um... I just poking around on the Substack website. They had a page where you could see how much you would make as a creator, putting in something like 500 to 800 subscribers per month, you would get something like four grand per month. So that is the amount that Chip and Molly are turning down for their personal income to donate to the Rainbow Railroad. That is amazing. As he did say in that quote, it's entirely possible because they were given massive wads of cash by that Substack grant. So they don't need to be making monthly money on top of that. They were basically paid in advance to be given to be able to write these projects. So in Chip's mind, it makes sense. The stuff that you, you're, you're paid your salary in advance. Anything you make on top of that is going to Rainbow Railroad. And coming from Substack, who is low-key funding alt-right creators... It's not low-key. They are doing it. Um, that is probably the best way that they can counteract that toxicity. 
Um, I am very curious what people think of Substack. Um, if you are pro or con Substack, please, I'm very curious what people think. Um, this is something that is going to change the industry. You can't really deny that. As I said, uh, all of these major, major multiple title names getting pulled from big two books, someone's going to have to replace them. And hopefully that's going to bring a whole new era of legendary creators into Cape Comics who can then move beyond Cape Comics once they have established names the way traditionally happens. So... Um, there's two ways to see it for sure. And I'm, I want to hear people's feedback. The internet is very much of two minds about it, as you can definitely tell from the quotes that I've just given. So, um, let me know what you think. And that wraps up today's episode of Sensational She Geek Live from Yancey Street. This is episode 30B, and thank you very much for listening to whatever portion of episode that you were able to do so. Um... Oh gosh, next episode is going to be on Monday the 23rd, and it will be covering a number of things, including the next week's comic book pull list, of which we have quite some awesome stuff to look forward to. It will also be covering, uh, oh god, not the Bad Batch, huh? There's no Bad Batch episode Friday. I'll find something to talk about. Maybe my husband and I will watch, um the Superman and Lois season finale and the last couple of episodes that we have been avoiding because the last episode I watched was honestly garbage. Uh, but that will be something to talk about Monday. And as always, I mean, as you can see here, there's always news and things to discuss. Uh, maybe we'll get more details about Riri showing up in uh, Wakanda Forever. Maybe more details about the Fiona and Cake series or Legion of Super Pets, Kenobi, Sheena, you know, whatever it may be. Uh, there's always stuff to talk about and we will discuss all of that coming up next on Monday. Once again, thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope you have a good weekend. It's supposed to be a little bit cooler this weekend where I am, but still watch out for your health and safety. Make sure you're drinking enough water, even though it may not be so hot that you're sweating 24-7. You still need to drink your water. Try to use empathy when you're, you know, handling your fellow humans. And don't be judgmental, because I can guarantee you, if you were in their position, things would be a lot different. Have a great week, guys. Get sweaty about something.